Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. There's a lot to get to today. First off, Kate Burdett has a segment about alcohol consumption and women. I'll talk with U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown about Amtrak's plans to expand, which will have a major impact in Ohio. In about 20 minutes, I'll talk with somebody from healthcare.gov about open enrollment. People getting health insurance through the Affordable Care Act have through Friday to make changes or sign up. The Ohio Senate passed a bill this week making changes to the legalization of recreational marijuana that was passed by voters with state issue two last month, but the House has not yet voted. At the bottom of the hour, we'll present portions of Governor Mike DeWine's news conference this week about his stand on the bill. And in about 40 minutes, I'll wrap up the hour talking with somebody from the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio about sports betting and concerns about kids and gambling that comes with the holiday season. I'm Kate Burdett, and recent studies have found that the number of women at risk for fatal consequences from overuse of alcohol is increasing. So I went to find some experts. We're joined today by Oyama Garrison, the president and CEO of Mary Haven, also the chief clinical officer of Mary Haven in Columbus, Dr. Beth West. Welcome to you both. Thank you for joining us here on Columbus Perspective. Thank you for having us. Well, this is kind of a serious topic, but I think the timing is good because of the holiday season. And we hear a lot around this time of year about people, shall we say, overindulging. So what can you tell me is the biggest takeaway from these recent studies that have indicated that it's women in the 35, around the 35-year-old age group that are really at risk for this, right? So, yes, I'll kind of kick it off just a little bit just to share some added perspective and thought. And then I'll ask Dr. West to kind of really lean a little bit more into what we're seeing uh, as an organization and across the sector. You know, first and foremost, this has been an ongoing problem uh, in some respects for many decades, if not uh, centuries. Uh, when we think about the potential for trauma, we think about moments where people have lapses and or experience variances within their lives that then lead them from a mental health perspective to then turn to substances like alcohol. And so Mary Haven was started in 1953 on that very premises, which was an opportunity to provide women at the time with an outlet in order to be able to manage through, seek recovery and uh, treatment relative to alcoholism. And let's just face it, what we've experienced and what we've seen in the last three years uh, relative to the pandemic around COVID, we've actually seen a dramatic increase in the number of people in general utilizing alcohol as a substance to, let's just say, manage through, numb the pain, however you want to classify it. But we've seen a dramatic spike when it comes to women And as we start to enter into the holiday season, we're going to see that number continue to grow. So the data from Columbia University, the data from SAMHSA, uh, which is a national organization that oversees a lot when it comes to mental health and substance uh, use and addiction, uh, typically also tracks very well when it comes to uh, seasonality. Uh, But what they're also taking a look at is where these spikes occur geographically, and we know in the Midwest, uh, access uh, tends to be an area of opportunity, and the urban populations, an area of opportunity, and for women in particular, it's the easiest drug of choice that they can actually obtain. 
the researchers in this case said that it's especially acute among women in their mid-30s who have become more prone to binge drinking, which the term binge drinking I don't think ever has a good connotation. Dr. West, can you give any insight as to why this particular demographic is so vulnerable? Sure, I can do that, Kate. And so if we think about what binge drinking is, it's really four drinks or more for a female in one sitting. And so some people may think that that's not all that much to be considered binge drinking. And I'm, I'm really glad that we're bringing light to this topic because I think it gets people to start to think about their use and take inventory of their use. And I think that age demographic, if you think about women in that um, 35 year age group, they're raising kids, they're trying to stay connected to friends. Uh, they may be in the workforce or maybe they may be working within the home. And I think alcohol is very common in our society. If you think about it, there's brunch, there's paint and sip, there's happy hour, there's yoga and wine. I mean, we're even combining alcohol with things that normally would be considered wellness activities. And I think for women in those demographics, they're partaking and participating in all of those things that on the surface seem to be benign and to keep them connected um, with their community. And so I think there's opportunity where we wouldn't normally think of you know, sometimes when you think of binge drinking, you think of college age kids. But I think there's other opportunities for women in that 35 year age group to um, run into trouble with drinking as well. You know, one of the things that we have learned in conversations with some of the women is they don't even think that it's an issue. Uh, if you can imagine, most of them tend to drink wine and where they may have had one glass of wine a day that now has turned into an entire bottle of wine a day. And they are not realizing that that in and of itself is a component of binge drinking. We're having a conversation today with Ayama Garrison, the president and CEO of Mary Haven, which offers a range of addiction treatment programs and services in Columbus for 70 years now. Also, Dr. Beth West, Mary Haven's chief clinical officer, is with us to talk about the rise in binge drinking and alcohol use disorder among Americans, specifically women. What can you say from the standpoint of, of your facility, Mary Haven, about what you're seeing here on the ground in Columbus, Ohio? How are you noticing these trends? We are noticing these trends. Uh, we have a long-term women's program where more than half of the clients that are there living there, some of them with their children, uh, are suffering from alcohol use disorder. And we we really are seeing alcohol on the rise. It, it is something that's not always talked about. People don't feel comfortable. There still is stigma for reaching out for help. Um, because as Oyama said, they don't even realize it's an issue until it is an issue. Um, and oftentimes what we're seeing is people then are suffering from health consequences from their alcohol, legal consequences, um, relationship issues and challenges that then kind of propel them into seeking help and seeking treatment. And so we really are seeing an increase in alcohol as the drug of choice for a lot of people. As we are embarking on this holiday season, I guess it's already underway. I feel like a lot of people may have a front row seat to some issues that might be those things that are uncomfortable to discuss or perhaps, you know, they're watching a family member's habits change and they're concerned. Um, Oyama, what 
advice would you give to someone, a loved one um, in that position? What is the first step to take to try to help this person get the help that they need? You know, the very first thing that we have to understand is we're all human and we all have individualistic needs. And so the last thing you want to do is pass judgment. So I often share, be compassionate, uh, show some level of sympathy and empathy with the individual. Uh, before you, what we call WebMD, and try to diagnose it on your own, uh, make certain that you truly understand kind of where the person is at and be of good sound uh, a mind and body and ear, if you will, uh, to be able to sit down with them and just probe a little bit, ask appropriate type questions. Uh, there's ways in which you can phrase those sort of questions to just help them understand that you're really just there as a family member or as a friend, and ultimately have some level of concern. And maybe that concern is founded. It could be founded because, let's just face it, for some, they're genetically predispositioned to have some level of exposure that could uh, accelerate their addiction when it comes to alcohol. We know that there's a genome, there's a genetic predisposition when it comes to alcoholism. And in that, if the family member or friend happens to know that level of the history, and we know that that is prevalent, then perhaps it's how do you sit down and offer up some level of observation and not judgment? How do you approach them? Generally speaking, do it one-to-one, not in a group setting. This is not an intervention. If it's your first time having a conversation with someone about it, and be prepared to even offer up opportunities where they themselves can do a self-assessment. Plenty of them are available online. We can also provide that at Mary Haven. Or to be able to sit down with counselors or others and say, hey, listen, let me process through a few things. Because here's what we tend to find. with When it comes to alcoholism and certainly the use of other types of substances, it's in most cases, it's what we call co-occurring. So that means that there may be some underlying stress mental health challenge that's also going on, depression. They could have recently lost a job. I mean, all kinds of different factors uh, that can contribute to the reason why you're seeing this sort of what we call abuse present itself. So but again, before you pass judgment, let's be a kind ear. Let's listen. Let's observe. And then let's also bring good, useful information to bear. And I'm sure Dr. West can elaborate a little more. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think to your point, Oyama, about pulling somebody to the side, it's always best to have these conversations one-on-one with people. And the first thing to say is, I'm concerned or I'm noticing something. And and really that observation, not the judgment, not I think you have a problem, but this is what I saw today and I'm concerned. Can I help? You know, there's this whole idea of sober curious that's out there and has been kind of the buzzword in mainstream. A lot of people are really kind of thinking about sobriety and what that means, even if they don't have an alcohol use disorder. And so there's a lot of ways that people can come alongside folks and can walk through them with the journey. And if they need additional help, we are always here at Mary Haven to help with outpatient counseling or um, medication-assisted treatment for alcohol. We can provide a wide variety of services and education for families. Mary Haven has been there for decades and continues to be. Go to maryhaven.com to get more information on all of the wonderful services that they offer. 
Oyama Garrison, the president and CEO of Mary Haven, and Dr. Beth West, their chief clinical officer. I so appreciate your time today to talk about this really important topic. Was there anything else that you wanted to add before we finish up? Yeah, you know, the only other thing that I would add to this is, again, we're talking about a substance that is readily available. Uh, the data from SAMHSA suggests that even at the age of 12, we are noticing uh, youth who are consuming alcohol. Uh, 48% of the American population has reported that they have had some level of a drink within the last 30 days. Think about that. 48% of the American population, we're talking over 330 million people and 48% of that. Uh, for some, we recognize that consumption of alcohol can truly be uh, controlled and very, very occasional. Uh, but for others, we recognize, too, that that addiction, all it takes is one sip and their lives can spiral and change. Uh, and so for that, we at Mary Haven want to make certain that those who do find themselves questioning, uh, do they have what we consider to be an opportunity or problem? Uh, is there a potential that they could have some of this genetic predisposition? Could it just simply be that they are experiencing some added trauma and stress in their lives that's causing them to turn to substances like alcohol? Uh, we have a team that is available to help meet with them, talk with them, coach them through this. Uh, we also have individuals who go out and meet with youth in the community to talk through what we see as symptoms and signs that could potentially lead to paths down this what we call proverbial rabbit hole of alcoholism. It is a disease and it is not to be judged, but for those that are suffering, all we can do is be empathetic and lend that kind non-judgmental ear that you've heard about today. Thank you so much for joining us here on Columbus Perspective. I'm Kate Burdett. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. On Thursday of this week, I had just a few minutes to talk with Democratic U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown, who made an announcement this week about Amtrak's expansion. Included in the expansion, the Midwest Corridor will connect Chicago and Pittsburgh through Columbus and Fort Wayne, Indiana. The second corridor, called 3C Plus D, will run through Cleveland, Columbus, Dayton, and Cincinnati, that corridor also will include stops in Delaware, Crestline, Springfield, and Sharonville. Two other routes that go through Ohio also will expand. You made a big announcement this week regarding Amtrak and Ohio playing a huge role in it. Yeah, Ohio's always been a major real state, but Amtrak, Amtrak investment has sort of disintegrated over the years, and I don't, I don't think just the East Coast... Uh, should have Amtrak service. So this is a beginning of of doing what we should do in Ohio. That's a rail line for Amtrak service from Cleveland to Columbus to Dayton to Cincinnati, then trains coming into Columbus from the east, uh, trains going west out of Columbus uh, through Lima and to Indianapolis or Chicago, and then increasing both the speed of the train and the number of trains through northern Ohio. Uh, when I was a single parent years ago, my two daughters and I used to take an Amtrak trip out west uh, to national parks, and we'd go to a basement national park and a baseball stadium. And um, but it was it was a great vacation for ten days or two weeks. But it it's the, the service was once a day. You'd have to get on in the middle of the night. Uh, it and there there were there were delays because of CSX and Norfolk Southern and and uh, Pacific Rail. 
So um, the, the, the major rail companies need to work with us, help invest, uh, build up these lines so it can be faster and more regular train service. Some of the towns on one of these lines uh, that would have stops would include Lima, Kenton, Marysville, Newark, Coshocton, Newcomerstown, Eurexville, and Steubenville. Does this benefit those towns economically? What what happens to life there as Amtrak relates to it? Well, we, we've got the governor on board here, unlike 10 years ago when the feds first, when I first started working with the federal government about it. And part of this is uh, to go to smaller towns too. When, but the but the service has to be on time. It has to be faster trains. It won't be high speed rail, but faster trains. And it has to be more regular service, not once you know, not once every two days or something. So, and if it goes to Coshocton or to um, a town like Lima or Mansfield, where I grew up, um, it will matter to the community to build around that. As long as it's regular service and reliable service, we're not there yet. This is a study that will include all of those communities. Um, this will be the first time Columbus would be have have passenger service in decades. It will make the service from Cleveland to Toledo and small towns in between uh, more regular at better times of day and night, um, and it will mean that that. Uh, it gives people another option of transportation uh, that's that's nice for a family that can be good for business travel and can be for good for businesses in smaller communities. But too often, uh, the federal government and state government, I would say, forget small towns. I grew up in one. I understand that um, it helps these communities pull together as part of our state and our country. You mentioned uh, back in 2010, there was uh, high-speed rail development efforts uh, across the country, and then Governor John Kasich killed $400 million in federal spending for that. What are your thoughts looking back on that? Well, I think the governor was wrong. I thought we would be much more ahead in rail travel um, and economic development as a result of rail travel. Um, but that was a decision he made more than a decade ago. Uh, governor DeWine is right this time. We'll work together. Uh, the, this is a study now, but this puts us in line uh, for real investment from the federal government and state government together and local businesses. But um, you know, rail, rail was really a major, major part of our economic development a century ago. It's not the same now. It's very different. Um, it's not the main mode of transportation people will use with air and, 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 um, and highways, but it's, a, it's, it's an option to travelers, um, and it's an, it will help us with economic growth. And especially, and one of the things I like about it is, you know, this isn't just an East Coast thing. Too often, I think Ohioans think that, that the East Coast and the West Coast get everything. My job for years has been to, that Ohio get its fair share. And frankly, my job now is Ohio gets more than its fair share. And this is an example of that. Does Amtrak, if, if there's a, you know, a dramatic increase in Amtrak traffic going on on these lines that, are, that I would assume would be shared by freight companies like Norfolk Southern, does that cause any interaction difficulties or safety concerns in your mind? It doesn't cause safety concerns because, frankly, the rail lines will be safer. Um, and we're doing major oversight on CSX in Norfolk Southern. It wasn't just East Palestine. It was Ravenna. It was Sandusky. It was Springfield. It was Steubenville where there were derailments. They weren't so newsworthy because there weren't hazardous materials on board. 
um, that, but uh, one of the, 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 this, this, the rail lines, yeah, the rail lines will be, will be shared by Amtrak and the, and the big freight companies like CSX and Norfolk Southern. But the law is that Amtrak gets precedent. So we will watch that closely. Both the federal, both taxpayers and rail companies will be um, responsible for fixing their lines, making them safe. Um, that's not been done well by the rail companies. And we know the outcome of that. So there's a lot of pressure in that. Uh, my my bill with Senator Vance to um, make rail lines um, safer and these rail companies holding them to account is all part of this. Okay. Uh, Senator, thanks so much for your time. Sure. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Sharon Graham. She is the National Lead Regional Administrator for HealthCare.gov's Marketplace Campaign. How are you? Good morning. I'm well today. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, it's uh, open enrollment for HealthCare.gov. This is always a big deal every year. It is. It is the open enrollment season um, for the Marketplace at HealthCare.gov. And we're encouraging everybody right now to go to our website, HealthCare.gov, review the quality affordable health plans that are out there and make a selection by December 15th for coverage that will be effective on January 1st. Okay, so this is a lot of uh, self-employed people, people who don't have health insurance through their employer or perhaps new retirees who aren't old enough yet to get Medicare, that, that type of thing, right? That's exactly right. For anyone who's looking for health care coverage uh, who do, doesn't otherwise have Medicare, then we're encouraging them, again, to go to the healthcare.gov website, review the plans that are available, and make a selection or a change by December 15th, and your health care coverage will be effective on January 1st. So for people who have never done this before, maybe they've always had uh, employer-based health care, are there still government subsidies for this, and what kind of an income range uh, makes people eligible for that? Yes, in fact, there are increased financial assistance available for people who qualify by going to healthcare.gov. And you can go in there and review the plans and determine if you're eligible for financial assistance. And what we're finding is that with this enhanced financial assistance, four out of five people are finding plans for $10 or less a month. And in fact, in Ohio, for example, a single 30-year-old woman who makes about $30,000 a year can find six plans under $10, and a family of four whose parents are 40 and are making about $66,000 a year, they can find seven plans under $10 a month. Wow. So what is the, what's the upper income limit for, say, a, a single person or for a couple that would be able to get a substantial amount of uh, help through the government? Well, for each person, it is unique because there are some different factors that go into calculating what your final premium is. And so that's why we're always encouraging people to go to healthcare.gov and to submit an application to find out what financial assistance they can be available for them. Okay. If somebody was enrolled in this a year ago and they've had it for the last year, why is it important to go back and look it over again and maybe change the plan? It's always important to review your health care coverage because not only can your personal situation change, but also the health care plan can change too. Every year, the plans can change the premiums that they charge per month or the out-of-pocket costs on the different health care services you receive. And then sometimes they'll even change the doctors and the hospitals they contract with. 
So that's why we always encourage people to go to healthcare.gov and review the plans that are out there, review your existing plan to make sure that it meets your needs. And if it doesn't, there are other options available to you. And now is the time to make the change again, December 15th, so that the change will be effective on January 1st. And I guess if somebody, let's say in the last year, if, if somebody was, did have uh, this coverage, if in the last year they've, say, been diagnosed with diabetes, that might make a difference in, in how that's treated and, and how it's covered, right? Well, the plans are very comprehensive, excuse me. So they cover things like doctor visits, inpatient hospitalization, prescription drugs. And in the case of diabetes, of course, insulin, because the Inflation Reduction Act did now cap the person's out-of-pocket costs for insulin at $35 a month. So especially if you have a chronic condition and need health care, we do encourage everybody go to healthcare.gov to review the plans that are available and to find the one that's right for you. Again, December 15th for a January 1 effective date. But if somebody has developed some, you know, maybe they had a heart attack or something and they foresee the next year being much more complicated medically than it was the previous year, this would be the time to look at maybe bumping up to a different level of uh, coverage, right? It might be the right time to do that. Um, in fact, again, it's always the right time now to review your health care coverage. And the plans at healthcare.gov do offer a variety of different coverages that can meet you where you're at, whether it be with benefits that are covered, again, inpatient hospitalization, prescription drugs, doctor visits, preventive care, um, but also at your premium price point, too, because there are many plans available depending on your own personal budget. Is there any way to to give like a ballpark figure, let's say before any subsidies, of how much these plans cost for for somebody in Ohio? You know, it really is very hard because it is personal depending on where you live, again, your gender, male or female, and your age, and of course also your family status, whether you're single or you're a family. So it is hard to put an exact dollar figure on that, Dave. That's why we want people to input their information personally at healthcare.gov and find out what premium assistance they might be available for and what plans are available in their area. Talking with Sharon Graham, she's uh, with the uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. What about uh, going forward? If there's a change in the presidency, you know, a new administration comes in, I guess some of these subsidies might change down the line, or I guess none of this is written in stone for a real long time, right? Well, the healthcare.gov platform has been here since 2013, and we have over 16 million people who have enrolled in the quality affordable health care that's there. And the premium assistance that we've been speaking of will definitely be available for people this year and through 2025 as well. And so that's why people need to go to healthcare.gov now to review the plans that are available to uh, submit an application and to see what premium assistance they might be available for in 2024. And again, the date to do that is by December 15th. This is uh, something I wondered about too. Let's say somebody has, for whatever reason, it could be retirement or maybe they got fired or whatever, and they were making good money and say they they lost their job in, in you know May or June of this year. So their income might still be high for the first half of the year, but now nothing since then. How does all that work in figuring out what your salary or income is and whether you're eligible for subsidies? Mm-hmm. Well, again, you're going to go to healthcare.gov. You've had there, if you had a, a change of circumstance with your employment, for example, that would allow you the opportunity to go to healthcare.gov and to enroll. 
and then you will be including in your application your current income information. And so that's why when you have that change in circumstance, please go to healthcare.gov and review the plans that are available to see what plan and what help you might qualify for in paying those health insurance premiums. So somebody would be able to, when they apply, they'd be able to make it clear that maybe I used to make $80,000 a year, but now I'm not making anything. So so I should be eligible for some yes. subsidies, right? Exactly. Yes. So again, healthcare.gov is the place to check. Okay. Anything else you want to add, Sharon? Well, I'd like uh, your listeners to know also, Dave, that besides our website, healthcare.gov, we do have a 1-800 number that's available. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and offers help in up to 200 different languages. And so that number is 1-800-318-2596, 1-800-318-2596. And another big change is that we've expanded the help that's right there in your community if you want one-on-one assistance through what we call our Navigator program. And you can find a local navigator to help you right in your community. You can go to healthcare.gov and right on the main page, click on Find Local Help, put in your zip code, and you'll find the navigators in your community. But you can also call our 1-800 number and ask to be connected to that local help. And again, that's 1-800-318-2596, and they'll be happy to put you in touch with the assistance in your community, and they can also help you right there on the phone. Okay, Sharon Graham, she is with healthcare.gov, uh, the marketplace campaign. Thanks so much for the information. We appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. Have a nice day. When it comes to a gun suicide attempt, all it takes is a moment. Heather and I had an argument just like any other couple. I was lost. I had snapped. I had a gun, and I was going to take my own life. Heather helped me realize that there was still a life to live for the better of myself, my family. My weapon is now safely put away. A moment of crisis can happen to anyone. Store your guns, locked, unloaded, and away from ammo. Hear more safe stories at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by Brady and the Ad Council. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. <laughs> This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Last month, Ohioans passed State Issue 2 to legalize recreational marijuana with a 57 to 43 percent vote. Because it was not a constitutional issue, state lawmakers can change it, and the Ohio Senate this week passed a bill that makes changes. The House has not yet voted and is also considering a different bill. Among the elements of the Senate bill, it would change the number of marijuana plants that can be grown in a household from 12 to 6, makes some tax changes, and allows medical marijuana dispensaries to also sell recreational pot. That was not part of Issue 2's plan. Lawmakers say this will make recreational marijuana available sooner. The Senate passed the bill with bipartisan support 26 to 2. One Democrat and one Republican voted against it. Shortly before the vote, Governor Mike DeWine held a news conference to announce his support for the bill and to urge both chambers to quickly pass it. The House opted not to hold session afterward and instead will take up the bill this coming week. We're presenting about 10 minutes of the governor's press conference to talk about this bill. Here's Governor Mike DeWine. The day after the recent election, I said that, of course, we accepted the will of the people of the state of Ohio. 
in regard to their desire to have legal uh, recreational marijuana in this state. But that we also had an obligation to make sure that this was done right, uh, that, the that the program was implemented properly. The majority of Ohio voters wanted to be able to buy marijuana in a legal manner. They wanted to minimize the black market, whether it be illegal storefronts or corner drug dealers. And the proponents of issue two specifically stated that they wanted recreational marijuana regulated as alcohol is regulated in the state of Ohio. We have an obligation to implement a safe legal market in Ohio for those people who want to use recreational marijuana. But we also have an obligation to protect the rights of those who don't want to be exposed to it. The day after the election, I met with the Ohio Department of Commerce Director Sherry Maxfield, who is here with me today, as well as the Ohio Department of Public Safety Director Andy Wilson, who is also with me, uh, as well as Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, Director of the Ohio Department of Health. Uh, I met also with their respective teams. And our purpose was to talk about the language uh, that was in the initiated statute and to hear the concerns that they might have, concerns about the difficulties in its implementation and the risk it poses to Ohio families and Ohio children. We immediately began discussions with Senate leaders and with House leaders about ways to meet our obligation to the people of the state of Ohio. Yesterday, uh, in this room, we had a very lengthy meeting with Senate and House leaders and staff to discuss issues in great detail. The bill before the General Assembly, while respecting the will of the voters, the bill that was just passed out uh, in the Senate, while respecting the will of the voters, deals with the practical challenges of implementing its program and protects as best we can our children, our families, and those who don't want to be exposed to marijuana at all. It's very important, I believe, that this bill pass and become law as soon as possible. Let me talk about where we will be tomorrow without the enactment of this piece of legislation. We will have the following situation. While it will be legal for Ohio citizens to possess marijuana, there will be no place for them to legally buy it. This bill deals with this, and it deals with it by speeding up the time frame when adults will be able to purchase recreational marijuana legally, thus reducing the opportunity for the black market to flourish. And as I've talked to the director, uh, one of her big concerns uh, is the fact that this black market will just take off. Uh, people will be getting it from many sources, none of them legally. Uh, the consumption will go up. Uh, people will be able to use it, but they won't be able to legally buy it anywhere. We do not need an expanding black market. Without this bill, people could be buying marijuana that has fentanyl in it. The leading cause of death in the state of Ohio of overdoses is fentanyl, 80% of our deaths. 
It could include, it could be marijuana with pesticides in it, metals in it, other toxic contaminants that we know are often found in black market marijuana. Next, without the passage of this bill, our children may be exposed to marijuana smoke in any public place. For example, while waiting in line to see the Nutcracker at Playhouse Square in Cleveland next week. Another example might be while enjoying any of the numerous Christmas public light displays throughout the state of Ohio. And each of us, I'm sure, can supply our own example. Further, without this bill, we're going to see more and more signs and billboards for illegal marijuana, including ads targeting our youth. This bill will speed up the process for enacting advertising regulations and so that we can get control of these advertisements for illegal marijuana. This bill provides important protections to help prevent all of these very bad consequences. This bill will also create a permanent, a permanent source of funding for the following. Suicide prevention programs, the 988 programs, substance use treatment and prevention, poison control centers, safe driving initiatives, law enforcement training, jail construction, drug task forces, marijuana record expungement, and marijuana control operations. People are already assuming uh, that they can buy marijuana legally. Uh, we will be doing in Ohio what we do in regard to liquor. It is a control operation. It's a controlled state. Um, and so people cannot today buy it, but they can have it. Have it, they'll be able to consume it, but they won't be able to legally buy it. Uh, that is a recipe for disaster. And it's very important uh, for the House to get this passed and for us to be able to move on. Um, this is not a, a bill that is, uh, has everything in it that I want. It has some things that I might not want. Uh, but our part of our democratic process with two houses and a governor and, uh, is that we try to work things out. And so while this is a Senate bill, um, we did listen to what the House said and, um, you know, tried to, tried to come up with something that we believe that they, they, can, they can support. During Governor Mike DeWine's news conference this week about recreational marijuana, Ohio Department of Commerce Director Sherry Maxfield addressed the issue of the bill approved by the Senate, which would reduce the total number of marijuana plants grown in a household from 12 to 6. Home grow is supposed to be for personal use. You're not supposed to be able to sell it or even give it away. Um, a mature plant, home grow, will produce roughly between 75 and 100 joints. I want you to multiply that times the 12 that was available under the statute per household, and then remember that growing periods don't take a whole year, so there's multiple growing cycles. Most more sophisticated growers can get three cycles a year, so you do the math. It's a lot. It's a lot. And so what's in this bill is is still uh, much exceeds what a person would be able to consume themselves. Um, and so, again, 
The idea, I think what people were voting on, they wanted to be able to grow it themselves for their own consumption. They can clearly do that un under this bill. In fact, they're going to have a lot more uh, than they can consume themselves. In this week's news conference, Governor Mike DeWine talked about the importance of Democrats and Republicans working together to approve this bill. Going back, I didn't vote for the bill. I was not in, I, I was not in favor. Or I, I did not vote in favor uh, of this ballot initiative, but the people voted for it. And as I said the day after the election, we have an obligation to, to, to follow the will of the people uh, unless that's changed at some point. But we also have an obligation to make this work and to try to protect people and protect people who, you know, don't want to be exposed to marijuana smoke, don't want, but also the people who are consuming marijuana to make sure that it is it's pure. That is, in fact, it is safe. And so all of these changes, the whole bunch of the changes uh, I think bode well for those objectives. The objectives we have, I think we're meeting with this bill. I think it's a very, very good bill. And, uh, you know, it's, an, it's imperative that this thing get passed. Again, the Senate has passed the bill. The House will consider it this coming week, but they also have a bill of their own they're considering. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. This is Dave James, and wrapping up the hour on the phone with me is Mike Bazelli, who is the Associate Director of the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking to us. What is the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio? Uh, we are a, a statewide nonprofit and advocacy group, so we, we have a couple of charges, uh, one being advocating for uh, responsible gambling and consumer protection, so we're we work very closely with the legislation. We work with the Casino Control Commission and the Lottery Commission, making sure that you know consumer protections are a main part of gambling expansion, and also uh, workforce capacity. So we do all the trainings across the state for counselors and social workers who treat gambling addiction and also working with preventionists and educators, making sure that uh, communities uh, colleges, other populations are, are aware of problem gambling and, and responsible gambling practices and just making making sure it's part of the conversation. And Ohio is uh, right up there now in gambling activity, uh, especially with the explosion of sports gambling this year. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people wouldn't suspect, but Ohio has one of the largest gambling landscapes in the entire country. You know, we have 11 brick-and-mortar casinos and racinos. We were one of the first states with a lottery. Um, and then now we have sports betting, and, and that's inside of our venues, but it's also through mobile applications. So there's there is something for everyone, and, and that's great because a lot of people do and can gamble responsibly and within their means, but it can also be problematic for the folks that, that, that struggle with that. So we need to make sure that we have resources in place to serve them. I think that it's just so interesting, too, because it was such a struggle with statewide votes uh, back in the 90s, I think it was, and failures just to even get one casino in the state. Yeah, well, you could see that once once things started to grow across the nation, um, it, it seemed like it was inevitable that we were going to have casinos here. And we once they came, David, it was a proliferation, whereas other states may open one venue wait a few years, open a second and a third. We opened 11 venues in 16 months. So we had a very big growth very quickly, and you can see that in the revenues. Um, and then 2% of the tax revenue.
revenue does go to the state for prevention and treatment, and that ends up being in the millions of dollars every year. And I can say that Ohio does a really good job utilizing those funds impactfully. Again, making sure that clinicians are trained to treat problem gambling, making sure that that treatment is free of charge to anyone who needs it. And again, a lot of great prevention work being done in the communities. And one of the reasons uh, we're talking to you today is to talk about the holiday season because that kind of presents unique challenges or different challenges when it comes to problem gambling uh, in Ohio, right? Yeah, we, we join a campaign alongside the National Council on Problem Gambling called Gift Responsibly, and it really just talks about how, you know, it, it, it kind of becomes normal to give uh, lottery products, especially scratch-offs as stocking stuffers or other holiday gifts. And you know, there, there can be a, a, an issue there because it really starts to normalize the behavior. And you know, gambling is not risk-free. Again, a lot of folks who choose to gamble can do so responsibly, but, but it can be a pretty devastating problem for others. And you know, we know, as with any risk behavior, whether that is a substance, alcohol, the earlier you engage in that behavior in life, the greater risk uh, for developing a problem and also the greater severity of that problem. So, you know, if children are, are receiving lottery products at, at five or 10 years old, it really just normalizes that behavior. And anyone in gambling recovery will tell you that they remember their first big win. They remember winning $100 on a lottery ticket when they were 10 or, you know, going to the racetrack with a, with an older brother or a father and, you know, winning $500 on a horse and what that feeling did and how it made them feel and that it stuck with them and really imprinted on them and led them down that, that, that path and, and a destructive path. So I think, you know, we want to think twice before we start normalizing that behavior for, for young people and presenting them presenting them with those types of gifts. Yeah, that makes sense, because, I mean, if you've got an 8- or 10-year-old who, you know, on Christmas morning gets that out of the stocking stuffer and scratches it off, and even if it's only $2 or 10 the rest of the family is praising them for being a winner, and, and that can absolutely have a big impact. Absolutely. Who doesn't want to win, right? Win anything. Win, win a race, win a, win a sport game, or, or win money. I'm, so... And, and I think you make a great point. It doesn't matter if it's two dollars, ten, a hundred. It, it's a big win for you, right? So that might be a hundred dollars for someone else. It could be ten for someone else, and especially for a child. You know, you didn't have to risk anything. You didn't have to do any work. All you did was got your dime and and scratched for two seconds and won some money. So that thought of winning money, I'm putting much into it. But then also, like you said, the praise people throw their hands up and say, "Oh my gosh, this is a tremendous thing." Um, that, that can, again, imprint on someone, and they'll want to do it more often. In addition to that kind of thing, though, there's other elements of, of gambling that you folks say uh, kids are being exposed to uh, beyond just that kind of thing, right? Yeah, well, what we're finding out is there are a lot of gambling mechanisms inside of video games, and you hear the word gamification, uh, thrown around sometimes. People may have heard the term loot boxes. This is where you actually pay real-life currency to open up a box. Sometimes it looks like a treasure chest or a suitcase inside of a video game, and there could be nothing in it. There could be a very 
you know, low type of item, or there could be some great item that can advance you through the game. And what that sounds exactly like is gambling, right? You pay money to the possibility of gaining something else. And it's even gotten to the point where a lot of these games are being mandated or required to show the odds of winning something good or profitable inside of a loot box. Well, what else shows you the odds of winning something, right? Gambling, sports gambling, uh, slot machines. They tell you what the odds of winning are. So kids are really being exposed to gambling elements or actual gambling inside of their games. And these are things that, again, you know, parents, teachers, you know, should start looking out for. And Ohio has a really great resource for this. It's a website called Change the Game Ohio. And it's got great information for educators, for parents, for children about, you know, what this looks like, how, how are gambling components being fit inside of video games. And there's actually a video game inside of this website, something that kids can play to learn about responsible and problem gambling. So I would, you know, I, I'd really uh, advocate for folks to go to that website and, and learn a little bit more about it. Talking with Mike Bazelli, Associate Director of the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio. What are the warning signs or the symptoms that a kid, and maybe it's for anybody, might have a gambling problem or just an un- unhealthy uh, take on this sort of activity that yeah. you might be worried about? Yeah, I think the first one people are going to notice is, is changes in mood or behavior. So, you know, agitation, frustration, stress, anxiety, all these types of things. Certainly there's going to be a financial component, right? So are, are people borrowing money? Are they not able to explain where their money is going? You know, maybe there's even some criminal activity. Maybe they're stealing money, pawning or selling, you know, personal items to get money, right? So there's a financial component and warning sign. You know, loss of other activities or hobbies. So all of your time is spent gaming or gambling. You know, you're no longer spending time with friends, family, or other hobbies that the person was interested in. Now, people may think or notice that 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 really mirrors other addictive behaviors, right? Those same warning signs could be said for for alcohol or other drugs, and I think that's important to realize that, hey, we, we all probably already know what these warning signs are. We're just not associating them with gambling. So I think if you're, you see a loved one, a friend exhibiting some of this, and you know that they're engaged in gambling or gaming, that may be, may be a time to have a conversation. And then, you know, we've talked about sports betting. Um, you know, why do people game? Why do people video game? Because it's fun. Why do people sports gamble? Because they like sports, right? And it's fun to watch, and there's the thought that putting money on it may make it even more exciting. And that's all well and good, but I think another huge warning sign is is video gaming or is sports betting no longer fun, right? Is it taking a turn where I'm stressed, I'm angry, I'm anxious? That is when we can really notice, hey, I need to take a step back because I'm doing this for fun, but it's no longer enjoyable. Sports gambling, you know, I listen to some of these uh, sports pundits on radio or on television who talk about gambling so casually and talk about their gambling activities so casually. It just sounds troubling, just listening to them talk about it without even thinking about whether they have a family and kids and and what kind of a financial impact it might be having on them. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It it, it is so casual, right? And that's 
organizations like ours, that's one of our concerns, right? It's becoming so normalized. Just a few years ago, you know, this isn't 50 years ago, 10 years ago, just a handful of years ago, nothing was more separated than sports and gambling, right? You know, you've got Pete Rose, for an example, right? One of the best, inarguably one of the best baseball players of all time, banned from baseball for gambling. Now, every baseball field in the country has gambling advertisements on their home run porch, inside the stadium, in the dugouts, right? So these things that were so far apart have become so intertwined and intertwined so quickly that, that it, it is casual. You can't turn on ESPN or Monday Night Football without being bombarded with, with as much gambling talk as is what's actually going on on the field, right? right? Yeah. So here's another thing. You can easily make the parallel to lottery as a stocking stuffer. It normalizes the behavior. And, um, I, you know, I, I think it's a great point that if they're going to talk about gambling so much inside of, you know, commentary on a game, there should be a, a responsible gambling message as well that, that goes along with it. Right. I mean, more people drink alcohol than gamble, but you never hear anybody on, in a sports broadcast casually talking about how drunk they got the other night. Yeah, yeah, you don't. And you may see a Budweiser advertisement on a commercial or on, you know, the sign inside of a football stadium, but the commentators don't also have a glass of Budweiser in their hand. Exactly. They would all say that that's probably inappropriate. However, we're talking about how the lines are changing and what's the over-under just as casually as we're talking about, you know, how many yards is it to the first down. So I think that's a great that's a great example. Talking with Mike Bazelli from the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio. Beyond that, too, you know, there, and I know this goes outside of what your agency does, but I'm just curious about your take on it. I mean, now we've seen an Alabama baseball coach who was caught up with illegal wagering actually at a sports book in Cincinnati, and the Ohio Casino Control Commission got involved in investigating that. It just seems like with gambling going on with college sports and all that, who knows what's going to happen in the future? Yeah, well, I would say that's actually that's actually really inside of our scope. So we're we're really concerned with the college athlete and just the college student in general. I've actually done a lot of work up in Cleveland with uh, universities in the in the Cleveland area, uh, talking with college athletes, talking with Greek Greek life students about responsible gambling and it is a concern because students are gambling we know at student athletes are extremely exposed to this so the question is one is it being discussed on campus do campus health centers and counseling centers have counselors who are experienced in gambling addiction and can talk to students who may be having a problem and then furthermore just uh, a lot of these colleges are even partnering with sports betting operators. So again, you know, where is this divide? It seems to be coming too close together. And I can tell you that uh, we're actually working really closely with the University of Cincinnati, who's doing a lot of great work educating their students and even adding problem gambling curricula to social work classes. So, so you know, young social workers are, are coming out already knowing about gambling addiction and and how to treat gambling addiction so that's really great and then there's a lot of research being done at miami and ohio university so i think ohio's taking really great steps to make sure that that this population 
is being addressed because we can't we kind of can't let sports betting infiltrate if you will our, our colleges and universities because that's supposed to be those are supposed to be safe and healthy environments right there's there have been in the past of course uh, you know point shaving in college basketball years ago and all that but you know, if, if you get a – it doesn't even have to be a high-profile quarterback. If you get a, a a quarterback at any level in college football who all of a sudden it becomes obvious and, and it's proven that he's intentionally thrown a couple of interceptions in a game to lose so he can win in gambling, that's going to be a, a multi-billion dollar issue. <laughs> yeah, and you're already seeing it. I mean, it's happening so often when, you know, a team – doesn't go for an extra point or something like that a lot of people start you know shouting on social media about how things are fixed and rigged and the big issue one you said you know point shaving and uh people being upset and billions of billions of dollars going opposite directions but there's also the health of the athlete so in the age of social media you know we've we've seen it here where uh recently ohio state basketball players are getting you know, threats on physical safety in their life because they missed a few shots, right? Right, right? And people lost money on their performance, and this is the issue. Every the, the safety and the mental health of college athletes because they're getting bombarded with threats and negative words and things like that. And then, you know, the other aspect is, you know, this isn't our, our granddaddy's sports betting, if you will, right, where you bet on who's going to win the game. And if you, you know, if you really wanted to, you know, point shave, you really had to get multiple players or the entire team involved to throw the game in the world of sports betting. Now you can bet on an individual's performance. So you only need to get one player to maybe throw a, throw an interception, right? Or you, you only need to get one guy on your side to do that because you can bet on individual performance, not the team performance. So it is a whole new ball game no pun intended <laughs> well mike it sounds like you've got pretty good job security <laughs> we, there's a lot to do there, right before we uh finish up here give uh any uh advice or anything else that you want to add along these lines yeah i think it's just you know my organization ohio in general we're not anti-gambling we want to make sure that we keep gambling safe and responsible for all those that do it and we want to make sure that we have really accessible and available resources for those that may that, that, that may be encountering issues. And I guess I would leave with, you know, we have a helpline, 1-800-GAMBLER, that's 24-7, 365. And we encourage anyone to make the call. The individual person, family members or friends who may have concerns or questions, that helpline, those operators are trained uh, they know how to have conversations. They know what the resources are. And if it is just a loved one who's calling to get a grasp of what's going on with their loved one, if they want some resources or tips on how to have a conversation, or if it is the individual that is doing the gambling and, and, and they want to talk or, or get directed to resources, we'd encourage anyone to make that call because uh, there's a lot of great resources out there that they may not know exist. Okay, and what were the websites again? Uh, well, 1-800-GAMBLER is the helpline. Then the other one I mentioned for youth is Change the Game Ohio. And then lastly would be anyone can call Problem Gambling Network of Ohio. We connect everyone to all the various resources. So pgnohio.org as well can get, get people where they need to be. 
Great. Mike Bazzelli again. He's the Associate Director of the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio. Good information, Mike. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me and helping us kind of spread the word. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.